0: Hello and welcome to World History Encyclopedia's podcast, where we put your questions to archaeologists, historians, and curators, our experts on history. I'm Fiona Richards and I'm delighted to be here today talking to Dr. John Tidmarsh. John is an archaeologist, former lecturer, and an honorary associate at the Department of Classics and Ancient History at the University of Sydney in Australia. He received his PhD also from the University of Sydney and has conducted excavations in Syria, Jordan, Greece, and Cyprus. He is currently co-director of the University of Sydney excavations at Pella in Jordan, and of the Australian mission to Jebel Khalid in Syria. Welcome, John.
1: Thank you, Fee. It's a real pleasure to be here, I must say, too.
0: I'd like to start with an easy question, although it's because you're a bit of an unusual academic, aren't you, because you're a medical doctor as well. So most people would be satisfied with one career, but how did you end up with two?
1: Well, it's a very good question, Fee, and not all that easy to answer. But uh, look, going at school, I was always interested in, I guess, more of the classics. I did uh, Latin all the way through school, and then I was able to do it at university during my medical degree. And I did four or five years of ancient Greek at school as well, though sadly I had to give that up when I did my medical degree, because you had to do some medical subjects. And I guess, you know, in all modesty, because I did pretty well in both those subjects. I I always had a penchant for for the classics. And after I finished my uh, specialist training in medicine, I was an endocrinologist. And I must say, at that stage, I had the the top job, I guess, in one of the bigger hospitals in Sydney. I thought, well, look, I really want to go back to do classics and archaeology. And I was interested in it. I went on a, a tour after my med- my specialist degree with a, a person I knew who had the chair in classical archaeology, and I'd known him because I was at the same university college as he was staying at. And after that, I thought, well, I want to um, I want to pursue archaeology more seriously. I continued on with medicine. I, I did half and half, and obviously went back to do my uh, B.A., M.A. and Ph.D. in archaeology, and then tutored for a while. And then, lo and behold, a job came up when I was uh, a half time job uh, teaching or lecturing in classical archaeology at Sydney so I was able to do half the week in medicine and half the, the week in, in archaeology and it worked perfectly. And I'm still doing that to some degree though I'm doing a lot less at Sydney University in terms of lecturing but more taking tours overseas and as you said directing excavations in Syria though that's obviously not on the cards at the moment sadly and because of the, uh, the pandemic we've had to uh, put on hold our excavations in Jordan as well but it'll come back later.
0: Yeah, hopefully. Inshallah, as they say. But that's that's fantastic, John, that you've actually managed to be able to pursue both of them, do both of your love, so to speak. Well, listen, today we're mostly talking about Persia. Yeah. And I suppose one of the first questions might be, why do we know the area as Persia and the Persian Empire when it was actually based in Iran?
1: Yes, it's a good point. But again, we are mainly looking at the Persian Empire, so to speak. And well, there are multiple Persian empires. I mean, when we say the Persian Empire, we really, most of us think of the Achaemenid Empire, which is that empire of Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes. The Achaemenids named after the eponymous founder of the I guess of the Achaemenid tribe, whose name was, we're we're told, was Achaemenes, hence the Achaemenid Empire. It is the Greeks who really have spread the terminology as the Persian Empire, because the, the Achaemenids, their their heartland in, in Iran was actually the area of Parsa, or Pars, so hence the, uh, the Persian Empire from that. Later on, by Sasanian times, so several hundred years later, it was really known as the land of the Aryans, or Iran Shah, and uh, it has really uh, been call that often uh, after that time. And in fact, in, on the 21st of March, 1935, the first Pahlavi, the first Shah of, of Persia, sent a letter or a, a decree to all the ambassadors that they should then refer to Persia which they'd been calling it at that stage, uh, as uh, change it to refer to it as Iran. and But again, that just means the land of the Aryans. But interestingly enough, when you talk to Iranians out in Australia, and I think the same would certainly be true elsewhere, if you often ask them, well, where were you born or where did you come from, they're more likely to say Persia than actually Iran, which is of interest.
0: Yeah, maybe they want to be associated with the wonderful heritage that the Persian Empire conjures up.
1: Look, I think that's right. One of the reasons that the first Pahlavi did request a change from Persia to Iran may well have been because he wanted to disassociate him from the previous Qajar regime, who ruled during the 19th century, which was in many ways a fairly dissolute and corrupt regime, well under the, under the influence of especially the Russians and the English. And I think one of the reasons he, he wanted to change to Iran was to get away from this, this memory.
0: Fantastic. So you mentioned a couple of well-known names there, belonging to the Persian Empire, such as Zeres, but is there anyone mm. not so well-known that we should know about, do you think?
1: Look, I, I, I oh, where do you start? We're so limited, really, by what we know about the, the Persian Empire, or the Achaemenids, per se, because we really are we really only know them through the, the western eyes, especially Herodotus, especially, certainly Herodotus, Xenophon too, to some degree. So we know about the rulers, but I guess, fascinating people, and I, I'm not saying this just because uh, of our current uh, emphasis, I guess, on women's proper roles, but some of the queens of the Chemans seem to have been incredibly fascinating and strong people. Atossa, for example, is one who was the daughter of Cyrus the Great, and then she was the wife of Cambyses, of Cambyses' imposter, so-called Smyrdus and then Darius, and the mother of Xerxes, and she seems to have been a remarkably powerful and intelligent woman to have have done all this, and we know very little about her indeed. And there's a whole string of these women, Uh, Esther, uh, as of uh, Esther and Mordecai fame, again, and the woman she displaced as the the wife of Xerxes, Vashti, all incredibly powerful women who we know very, very little about. And uh, I must say, I'd I'd love to know more about these, but we are so limited by the the Western authors, the authors who tell us all about this.
0: Yeah, sadly, that's no surprise really, is it, that women have been sort of written out of history or not noted, perhaps. But perhaps that could be an idea for for a book, John, for you, you could do about um, women of the Persian Empire.
1: Look, I think it would be, uh, it would be good it has been attempted to some degree but of course we there must have been well there were records Achaemenid records that existed but many of these would have been destroyed with alexander the great's conquest and others have been lost since that time and so you you'd be pushing to find enough to fill, well, I think enough to fill out the the records, which these people really do. These these females really do deserve. They obviously had tremendous power in the Achaemenid court.
0: Are there any concepts or innovations that we use today that can be attributed to the Persians?
1: Number one, their, their sensational road system, which Herodotus does describe in detail, and of course, even Sydney University, a team that we had working in Iran under Professor Dan Potts, uncovered one of the or partially uncovered, one of the road stations not far from Persepolis. And they did have this remarkably efficient road system going all the way, well, really throughout the empire, the Royal Road especially, going from uh, up to Sardis on the west coast of Asia Minor, but a whole series of other roads, which meant that any message could get through to virtually any part of the empire within a few days, and also the, the king's spies, those people who were were sent by the king to make sure that none of the satraps, none of the district governors were getting above them, their station. Uh, they were also able to travel quickly, and of course soldiers to any part of the empire. And this really was I think the first of the particularly efficient travel systems which we all use now the other one is It's not a concept, but it's an area which is really neglected. And I guess from my the medical world. I'm interested is a and it's not the Achaemenids but it's a later empire but it should be mentioned of that of the Sasanians, who rule between roughly 200 a.d until islam is the establishment of one of the really great university slash hospitals possibly the greatest in the ancient world a real bridge between the medical schools of greece alexandria and then through to the islamic uh, medical schools of baghdad jundi shapur or gondi shapur is the name of the medical school slash university not only medical university in southwest iran in khuzestan which these days the site is now covered with sugarcane now whenever i try to take a picture of the site all you see is sugarcane palm trees because it's on uh, private land but it established, uh, established there was an actual hospital, an actual medical faculty, and run on very modern terms actually, it's much the same as what we do, and it influenced massively early Islamic medicine. And it wasn't until Baghdad, the Islamic era, got in, into its stride and then established hospitals that Junda started to lose influence. And many of the physicians moved from Junda to Baghdad. But most people don't know about it, and yet it, it really is. Uh, uh, you know, without it, uh, uh, medicine would have been a very different uh, ball game. I think, for many hundreds of years.
0: You see, there's so much more to these ancient empires that we know, I think. There are certain bits that we always hear about, aren't there? And then yes, there are these right. other bits, Absolutely. which is what I love. So that's a great answer. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
1: I mean, over the last few years, I've been asked to give quite a series of courses on ancient medicine. I swore that once I Retired from medicine, I'll never do that sort of thing again, but they seem to be very popular, both uh, pre-Islamic and Islamic medicine. And that's when I really started to look at uh, Tundi Shapur, which, as the name implies, started just as a garrison of Shapur, one of the, the the second ruler of the Sasanians. And uh, until I really looked at it, I, I didn't, like you, I didn't really understand how important it was. It's one of those things you, you're not really taught about.
0: And talking about the Sasanians, there's the ancient faith of Zoroastrianism, isn't there, which oh, I love. Yeah. And that I think that had started before them, but they were the ones who made it a state religion, I think. But it's still being observed today. Is that right?
1: Yes, very much so. Uh, I mean, if you go to Iran today, which I guess I do two or three times a year, or did until the pandemic, one always visits the, well, nearly always, visits the desert town of Yazd, one of the really ancient towns on, on the, the north-south trade routes in Iran, on the, in the western part of Iran. And the main fire temple, well, I guess the headquarters of the Zoroastrian religion is in Yazd, at the, the modern fire temple there. Now, at the moment in Iran, Uh, there are about 15,000-20,000 Zoroastrians. By law, there has to be in the Iranian parliament one Zoroastrian, which is often not realised, just as there has to be two Christians and one Jew, for that matter. So these, I mean, admittedly, the most least the parliament is 290 people. But we have no law in Australia saying you must have a Zoroastrian or you must have a, a... Jew or you must have a, a Christian etc. So there, there are significant numbers still of Zoroastrians in, uh, in Iran and of course even though when the Islamic invasion came about, then the Zoroastrians tended to leave again round about the area of Persepolis, the the Achaemenid heartland, which was also the, in many ways, the Sasanian heartland. The Zoroastrians tended to melt away to more deserty places such as Yaz, so they are out of the the main firing land. But they weren't forced to convert because they were just like the Christians and the Jews, people of the book, so they were allowed to continue as Zoroastrians. They had to pay a tax, a poll tax, because they, they weren't more but they, they still continued on. Uh, and from time to time, however, they, there, there was a, they were persecuted to some degree. But of course, in the 9th the and 10th centuries AD, there was a quite a, an efflux from Iran, especially to India, uh, hence where we know them as the Parsis. And of course, this comes straight out of Pars, Persia. So the Parsis are the Indian Zoroastrians and, and of course, now they're elsewhere. But the Parsis, especially the Indian ones, have continued, and I think this still continues, to send back a lot of money back to Iran, to the Zoroastrian communities there
0: because when I was in Bukhara a couple of years ago, one of the buildings had Zoroastrian symbols on it. And I was really surprised mm. to see that because I had no idea that it had sort of spread beyond Iran. But did, it, did the religion spread far outside of Persia?
1: Yes, it did, as I said, far as India, but also along, because the Sasanians were right on the, the center of the, the Silk Road, And so this was just just as other, religions, uh, Manichaeism for example, they were able to spread east and, and uh, well especially east and west to some degree. So yes, so it did spread but via the Silk route. Although even the earlier Parthians had at least some of the Parthians had been Zoroastrians, probably the Parthian rulers, and there's still an argument as to whether the Achaemenids themselves, at least the Achaemenid rulers, may have been Zoroastrians or at possibly very close to it at that stage. Uh, That's still a bit of debate, but if not so, Astrians, they were very close to it in many ways.
0: Well, I think we have a lot of questions from our mm. WHE readers, so I think we should probably mm. kick off yeah. with one of them. And our first is from Carmen, and she would like to know, why did Cyrus the Great take the title of King of Babylon away from his son after giving it to him, and what age would Cambyses have been when he held the title?
1: Right, which is a cracker of a question, and it's always been one that's evoked uh, a lot of controversy number one and where we get this the information we we get this about is mainly from various tablets clay tablets from babylon which have been and as you know the babylonians were were history freak and uh, they would write a lot of the stuff down on tablets but many of these were just straight sort of commercial loans or what have you but being in the year of such and such when Cyrus or when Cambyses was king of Babylon or or whatever. So this would be the the way of dating it. Now there are quite a lot of these tablets, I think at least 30, who tend to mention this en passant, either especially about Cambyses being king of Babylon, but virtually not until he starts his reign is he ever known as the king of all lands. He's just just the king of Babylon. Now initially, when people started to decipher these tablets, it was felt that these referred to right at the end of the reign of Cyrus when Cambyses was coming into the throne and then he was, but then the question always was, why was he just called the king of Babylon then rather than the king of all lands, which he would have been? But more and more scholars have now decided that, Carmen says, or asks, that he was referred to, Cambyses, as king of Babylon very early on in the reign of of, uh, Cyrus, in fact. In other words, just after he'd captured Babylon, round about, say, 539, 539, 538, only seems to have been named as king of Babylon, never king of all lands, this is Cambyses, king of uh, Babylon, in the first year or so of the reign of Cyrus, his dad. And it has been suggested that it might have been when Cyrus at that stage, having just taken Babylon, was still expanding his empire, that he needed his the crown prince, that is Cambyses, to at least take care of Babylon while Cyrus was busy elsewhere. Within a few years this seems to have disappeared. Cyrus at Cambyses was never referred to again as King of Babylon, and this is again what Carmen suggests, that was it taken away from him at that stage. The title seems to have been, but yet Cambyses still remains on the scene. It, it appears hes it's not taken away from him because he's disgraced or anything like that, but it may be that by that stage Cyrus had then was able to stabilize his kingdom and so he no longer needed to have Cambyses as just being the king of Babylon. Cambyses then doesn't get called a king. And when he does get called a king, it's the king of all lands until uh, Cyrus has then died. And then, of course, Cambyses takes over. But it's still up for discussion as to why that should be the case. Several authors have suggested that even in uh, pre-Achaemenid, that is during Babylonian rule, you do get from time to time, it would seem, a crown prince being called, at least for a temporary time, king of Babylon, whereas the the actual ruler of Babylon is then, again, the ruler of the all land. So it may just also be a a sort of a, a reference to what was done before. It certainly does not appear that Cambyses lost his title as King of Babylon, uh, able to worship at one of the main temples there, Esagila, uh, because he was in any disgrace or anything like that, as far as we can tell.
0: Fantastic, thank you. We have another one now. How influential was Roman culture on ancient Iranians? Did they disparage it the same way Romans or Greeks viewed the Farsi?
1: They they didn't actually. Roman culture was pretty influential on the Sasanians for example because I guess these are the ones who and I'll come back to the Parthians in a second but what you certainly get is with the Roman culture especially in the early ti- early days of the Sasanian rule, uh, that is during the the rule of the first few kings Ardashir the first who ruled roughly 220 to 240 uh, and Sharpe or 240 to 270 these are rough dates of rounding up the numbers there were a lot of Roman innovations which came into the Sasanian world. For example, uh, Sharpur, uh, the second king, managed to to clean up three Roman emperors, which wasn't a bad uh, bad feat, actually. He launched a whole series of investigations to the west. Gordian, the first Roman emperor, who was actually killed by his troops, but Sharpur still took the credit for that. The second Rome, the emperor, the Gordian successor, immediately became a uh, a payer of tribute to Sharpur and then about twenty or thirty years later the third Roman uh, emperor Valerian became captive to Sharpur and actually died in captivity and sadly Valerian was quite old but Shapur still made him uh, become a human footstool so every time Sharpur wanted to get onto his horse, uh, poor old Valerian had to me- kneel down and uh, and was <laughs> and sharp stood on him and got on the horse well at least one story goes now what we see is with these conquests quite a few things happen uh we get coming in to the Sasanian world the roman method for building bridges and for building dams and places even today the remarkable shusta again in south in southwest iran uh, has this huge series of dams and tunnels with great grinding wheels for grinding grain, all in the Roman tradition. And these were all established, it would seem, during Sharpur's reign. We get the introduction of the mosaic technique, which wasn't a Sasanian technique at all, and it hadn't been used before that time, introduced into the the Sasanian world. And of course, this is because the Roman armies not only travel with soldiers, but they travel with engineers, with artists and what have you. And of course, when uh, Sharpo had his series of stunning victories against the, the Romans, these were the sort of techniques that were brought across by the Roman prisoners uh, to, to Iran itself. Shapur, I mentioned the great medical university, or the great university slash medical uh, hospital came into being during the time of Sharpur. And again, it would seem that uh, captive Roman physicians were brought across uh, to found it. In fact, one of Sharpur's, Sharpur's wives, who was a daughter of a Roman emperor, seemed to have really been keen on doing this uh, as well. So there's a whole, and, and the Roman planning, the uh, the sort of very grid plan that that many of the Roman cities were based on the sort of checkerboard plan, that was also an innovation which seems to have come into the Sasanian world at this time. And in fact, with the mosaics, I mentioned a lot of the the subjects of the mosaics, and you also see this in the wonderful silver gilt uh, dishes that we see, especially during the, the fourth century in the Sasanian world. Many of them have subjects which you, you can see or motifs which come out of the Greco Roman world. So there's quite a lot of, of culture coming in to uh, the is the Iran, Iranian world at that time. Now if you go back to the Parthians beforehand, that is the Parthians who roughly ruled between uh, 247 BC until about 220 AD. Of course, the Parthians straddled the, straddled the Greek world as well as the Roman world. And of course, at least initially in the first few hundred years, the the Parthians were very philhellene very Greek lovers indeed as well. So there, there is this strong influence coming mainly coming from the west to to the east less much less in the early Achaemenid period
0: i love all these cultures the way they're intertwined and as you say with the silk road and trade and everything everyone sort of takes the best perhaps from other cultures and incorporates it into their own which is very clever okay uh we have a question now from jonathan who teaches history at the Webb school in tennessee and he asks about Xerxes being mad So he says, I have been thinking about the idea of Xerxes as mad as portrayed in Herodotus. Herodotian aims aside, do you think it's possible that Xerxes may have done some of these behaviours as face-saving gestures, given how important ceremony and respect seem to be to Darius? Is this a Greek misunderstanding of a quite natural Persian assertion of authority?
1: Yes, which I think is actually a really good question. And uh, I was really, uh, I'm very glad he he asked that because you know, at, uh, I mean, the last time I, I read Herodotus from cover to cover was uh, lying on a Greek beach about 20 years ago. But I have read very often since then, uh, obviously Herodotus' description of the Achaemids uh, themselves. And this one has always been very fascinating. And the question is, as um, as your correspondence, Jonathan, is it, uh, yes. asks, um, why would uh, Xerxes, when he's He's crossing the the Hellespont. Suddenly, well, I mean, he loses his his boat bridge. Uh, but why would he really threaten? Well, threat uh, lash the Hellespont, put fetters into the the Hellespont, uh, try to burn it. Uh, sw- I guess uh, swear revenge at the fact of the, of the Hellespont itself. Blame blame the Hellespont for uh, for for the humiliating. Disaster that he sees as his as his boat as his boat bridge sinks, and then of course he also executes the the people who were responsible for planning it and building it. And number one, the the question has always occurred to me: Well, number one, uh, is uh, Herodotus being accurate about this? Number one, and there's no doubt I think that Herodotus always had it in for Xerxes, no doubt because of Xerxes. Uh, uh, burning of the the acropolis and destruction of athens in in uh, in 480 so when writing his histories i think he certainly had it in for uh, for um, xerxes number 2 of course was it actually accurate i mean did this actually happen or not we only really have herodotus word for it and this is one of the big problems that if we have again uh, a greek writing about it, a Persian king and a Achaemenid king who actually contributed a lot to destruction of the uh, of uh, Greek cities where well, you may not be getting a particularly unbiased uh, view of the whole thing was Xerxes as sort of arrogant and filled with hubris as Herodotus tells us um, there are certainly other suggestions that he was at least on occasions his treatment of Egypt uh, suggests that I think for sure and of course we also get his building or his cutting of the canal through the Athos Peninsula, when rather than drag his boats over the peninsula, which he could have easily have done, he went to massive efforts to build this great canal through the peninsula itself, Mount Athos, so his, his ships wouldn't get wrecked uh, as had been done previously, uh, and of course he, uh, he he built it the wrong way. Apart from the Phoenicians who knew how to build a canal, but probably, but he did, but he went to this massive trouble again. Was this pure hubris that he felt he was so powerful he could? Now, as however was was said, and I think this is a very good suggestion. And Jonathan suggests: Is this really face saving? And it's always seemed to me that there must be a lot of this face saving in it. But also, in other words he's got to at least if, if this is an accurate account that he has to improve impress his, his generals his troops that he's a man who can get revenge on what's been done to him but what isn't mentioned so often is that cyrus when he was at after all who always gets good press cyrus when he was um, about to to take babylon much the same thing happened he was transporting across one of the rivers the rivers just outside babylon he was he was transporting his horses, et cetera, and, uh, through on a boat bridge. And uh, one of them fell into the water and and was drowned. Now, Cyrus, we're told by Herodotus again, was absolutely furious and swore at the river and said, right, what I'm going to do, I'm going to make sure that I make you so low, your, 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 the water will be so low that even women can get across without getting wet at all. And yet no one talks about that as being uh, tremendously sort of uh, hubristic, so to speak. The other thing is that there's also a tradition, and you see this in one of the very old uh, writings that was linked up with Zoroastrianism, actually. And part of it was added to this, the, the so-called Avesta. Part of the Avesta was added during the Sasanian period. There is tradition that a guy called Jamshid, who was the, I guess, the progenitor of uh, of of the world and the, and of the Persians and the Sasanians also at one stage uh, flew across the world and lashed the world, hit them with a whip exactly as we're told uh, Xerxes did to the Hellespont, uh, because they were starting to pop, starting to populate too much. So there, it looks as though that there could easily have been a tradition there that when a ruler said, "I am the ru- I am the king of the land." Uh, not only it doesn't mean just the people, but the land, the waters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so it's quite in their remit to then punish them <laughs> as a result. So to me, it, it's always seemed that it's it's more than just Xerxes having a hissy fit, even though he may well have been hubristic and whatever, that there was, what is the word, acceptance, that this was part of the great king of all lands, uh, not just the people, but the land itself, and so he could punish them accordingly. And but I think it was actually a very good question by Jonathan, I must say.
0: And now we're just moving on to feudalism in Parthia. We're covering all sorts of things here today. Brennan asked, was it the best system for Parthia? Why could they never unite under a more centralized government?
1: Yeah, I guess the question is with that is, number one, did they ever want to want to unite under a central government? To a certain degree, you can see that happening in the previous Achaemenid Empire. Now, there was a great king. We've already talked about Cyrus, Xerxes, Darius, etc., etc. But under just underneath the great king, of course, there are a whole series of satrapies or provinces, somewhere usually about 23 or 24, each of them ruled by a satrap normally a, a member of the royal family, with then local members below him, and they had remarkable powers in themselves. It would seem that as long as they they kept things under control and and made sure that the the taxes went back to the to the central depot, which in most cases seems to have been Persepolis, that they were given a remarkably sort of remarkable at least semi-autonomous powers themselves. So you can see that already before the the Parthians come on the scene. Now of course unlike the Achaemenids and unlike the sasanians, the Parthians originally were a tribal group coming from uh, really probably coming from Scythia or Central Asian Central Asia originally, then moving into an area just to the the southeast section of the of the Caspian Sea, uh, previously a province under the Seleucids, uh, that is the, and the, under the uh, Alexander successors, and then they moved after that. But again, it would seem that they're coming from an area in the Central Asia, or at least with Central Asian sort of heritage, where again, there, was, there wasn't an over, uh, overlying uh, autocracy. It really was a series of tri- a tribal sort of empire or tribal uh, group. And they brought this, it would seem, into into Parthia itself, that is into Iran, and then obviously into Iraq after that. Now Pliny tells us that at one stage there are eighteen kingdoms, each ruled, it would seem, by someone who was pretty well autonomous. but they would usually you know, group together in terms of uh, in, in, when uh, against a sort of threat from the outside. And the scenes have worked very well. After all, the Parthians did rule from, say, 247 BC un- until about AD. Well, that's 400 years. Now, the fact that there were these these so-called, inverted commas, kings, but there was only one great king of kings the whole time, that from time to time there would be revolts as one one of these kings would, would be a cover, uh, become above their station. It has been argued that by that stage, the term satrap uh, used beforehand for the Achaemenid rulers may have be, be, been sort of regarded as being a lesser sort of term to use. And so many of these, the Parthian rulers, wanted to be known as kings. But there was only one overall king who would occasionally face revolt, but in 400 years, well, is that such a surprise? To me, in other words, I think it worked pretty well. Again, it's a large kingdom. You're stretching right, after all. From... Iran right through into the, onto the border of the Euphrates in the west, and that's that's a large area. In those days, could you really attempt to to have a, a an autocracy where you have one central ruler, sort of virtually forcing everyone in that whole area into a a, a greatly subordinate position? I doubt I doubt if that's the case. As I said, it lasted for four hundred years. I think it was. Pretty effective, actually, to be yeah. honest.
0: And you just mentioned John there, the wonderful city of Persepolis. Do you think that was one of the world's greatest ancient cities?
1: Yes, I, I think certainly. I think a lot depends on how much is preserved. Persepolis was lucky and unlucky. Unlucky in that it was burnt uh, by Alexander the Great, of course. Lucky in that the the massive ash. Uh, and uh, and debris as a result of the the destruction by Alexander really protected a lot of the city from from being uh, the the building blocks being taken away and being reused, or from the city built, being uh, built on top uh, top of it. As you know as well as I do, Fee, that the the trouble we have in uh, many of the great archaeological sites, such as Pillar and others, is that you get layer on layer on layer of building from. Thousands of years and so you it's very difficult to assess later on how great or how how wide or how big a city was You don't get that at Persepolis. It was incredibly rich. We know that Alexander stripped something like 4,000 maybe about 4,000 tons of bullion from it uh, when he uh, And and that was just it would seem from the 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 central palace part alone from the the actual the platform from the citadel. He allowed his troops to to plunder from the outside. So incredibly rich. One of the things with Persepolis, however, is that we still really don't know what its function was. It was never mentioned by any Greek author until those authors who wrote about Alexander's conquests. So even if it was the a really powerful capital, you'd think at least someone like Xenophon, someone like Herodotus would have at least mentioned it in some in en passant at least. But it wasn't mentioned until we get Arrian and uh, and Diadorus and what have you in the first century B.C. and then the the writers after that. Whether its function, whether it did function as a capital of the whole empire, which I think is a bit hard to to justify that that was what happened. Whether it was as I think a lot of people would say the the great city which celebrated the New Year, the Nowruz, on the twenty first of March each each year. Well, it is today, where the various satrapies would bring their offerings to the great king, and that might have been its chief function. And, and the uh, and and the fact that most of these were then stored in the treasury. In other words, it was a great city, but certainly not the. It would appear not the great capital of the Achaemenid Empire that, say, Alexandria would have been, for example, for the Ptolemaic Empire or one of these other cities like that, but just the same. Absolutely fascinating to to visit, <laughs> there's no doubt about that.
0: It's really interesting that they they would put so much into building something that was just used mainly once a yeah, year, isn't it?
1: It really is. It's, um, now there are a whole series of, of uh, texts, again, they're on uh, tablets, clay tablets, which thousands from the so-called uh, fortification area and then about 800 or so from the treasury area and in fact when I was there in Iran again about uh, or just before the the pandemic started so I guess that was late 2018 the Tehran Museum had brought a whole large new series of texts and put them on display and these so-called fortification and treasury texts mention the running of the the area, but most of it is to do with uh, what the builders around uh, Persepolis are being paid and both in money or in kind, Uh, there are no slaves it would seem, Uh, but mainly in local areas and very few of the texts really are, are far ranging in terms of Governing the whole empire, which again is quite interesting, it, it seems as though there's more a local concentration, at least for a lot of the text. Now there are still many, many that haven't been interpreted, and maybe things will change. But it is interesting that uh, you get this massive building, well, some 400 by 350 me- by 300 meters in terms of the that is the the central part, the the palace part. So of course there are a lot of villas surrounding Persepolis, and the very fertile plain around that would have been uh, heavily populated. But it's interesting that uh, much of this you think would be semi-deserted during the year when, when the year when the king moved his court from the colder area to the warmer areas on the, to the other capitals. So so it's still it's it's somewhat up in the air as to what its actual function really was.
0: We just have to switch now to Syria, if that's okay, because Brennan also asked, what was life like for Syrian citizens during the first century BCE? Were citizens in a constant state of panic due to the forces of Rome, Syria, Parthia, (laughs) etc.? Oh,
1: that's a a good question, Brennan. One I uh, had to give a uh, talk about, oh, it's a few months ago now, but in Syria. As Brennan would be aware, Syria, following Alexander the Great, Comprised uh, I guess the the central part of the great Seleucid Empire Which was named after one of Alexander's generals which essentially stretched from the shores of the Mediterranean in in both uh, modern-day Turkey and then on the Syria-Palestine coast right through to modern-day Pakistan and a bit into Central Asia as well and what we see is that over the next few hundred years due to breakaway movements of the Greco-Bactrian cities due to the Parthians invading the central part during the loss of territory when the Seleucids were unwise enough to take on Rome, when they lost therefore uh, modern-day Turkey to the, the Pergamene. World, the the of Pergamon, that the Seleucid, this huge Seleucid Empire just contracted, contracted, contracted. Now by the first century BC, therefore, it was just a tiny rump of what it was beforehand. And what you got is a series of very small areas in modern day Syria and modern day Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, very small areas in which descendants of Seleucus the first but well, well past him of course were just fighting amongst themselves and this really seems to have started about the mid mid second century BC when uh, a particular Demetrius had a couple of sons another Demetrius and another Antarchus, and of course they had they had various children and each of their tried to claim a part of the Seleucid empire for themselves now by then they'd, they'd contracted Assyria which meant that there's there are there these like Condottieri, as uh, one description was, these people fighting, these rulers fighting amongst themselves all in the middle of Syria, just fighting to sort of grab parts of the of the empire, which by now is a minuscule part. Now there's that, there's the fact that by then we get the cities on the coast of the Mediterranean coast from about 125 onwards, and then well into the first century are all breaking away from Seleucid rule anyhow, and declaring their independence the jews from the middle of the, first, the second century and well into the first century are now rebelling again against the seleucids and especially right at the end of the second century and into the first century a, a particularly warlike uh jewish leader alexander janaeus then invaded seleucid territory on the east of the jordan river and of course this is our own Pella and burnt Pella to the, the ground so this is all happening the Nabataeans of Petra, half the time of fighting the, the, the Jews, the Hasmoneans, who are rebelling, as we've said. Uh, the Parthians in about about 40 BC are there. They also invade that part of the world. Tigranes of Armenia, one of the great rulers of Armenia, is in cahoots with Mithridates of Pontus. And in the first century BC, he invades from the, the north and gets as far as Ako, modern day Akko in Israel, of course. He also grabs enormous amounts of territory. In other words, you've got five or six or seven different sort of movements going on, different rulers trying to grab all this territory in Syria and, and down to the south in modern day Jordan. And it must have been fairly hectic in the first century BC, yeah. Now, as to how alarmed, The the ordinary citizen would have been, it's hard to tell. But again, with these battles going on, and of course, even though the armies would not have been vast, they'd all need supplying, uh, and they'd all need to either press gang people to fight in the armies, and what have you, or to press gang them to work. If you were living in the first century BC in Syria, or greater Syria, which includes the south of Syria and modern-day Jordan, and what have you, you would have always been on edge. I think there's no doubt about that it's a fascinating period because so much is happening and really so much is happening there but when you think that the the seleucids who were centered on syria the great empire which started going as i said from the mediterranean to pakistan that to see it absolutely fragment in this in the space of 200 years then it's uh, it's, it's a, a constant source of wonder, wonderment to me, I must say. And as I said before, when we, we talked about the last question, compare that to the Parthians who, after all, were pretty pretty good for 400 years.
0: Imagine this poor Syrian farmer who's saying, oh my God, it's this lot who are marching past today. Mm. and oh, that we've got the Greeks coming or whoever. But would you say that the ancient Syrians did manage to enjoy some of the innovations that were offered by these other empires, like Persia or Greece or Rome?
1: Yes, look. I I think they did. I I think there's no indication, there's no evidence that they were left behind, but obviously it would have been a problem with the unrest that was going on in the first century BC. Interestingly though, during the Achaemenid period, a lot of Syria, that is modern day Syria, and I guess when when I worked in Syria for 30 years at Jebel Hullad, we uh, spent a lot of time, uh, which was a a foundation of Alexander the Great or, or Seleucus, we spent a lot of time trying to sort out what the previous Achaemenid period had been like, um, it would seem that a lot of Syria, apart from the coast, which was quite active in, in trade for, with the West, a lot of Syria was very agriculturally based uh, area, as was further south, modern day Jordan and what have you. Now, they certainly were open to the travelers traders back and forth. We know that from records, for example, about uh, trade missions which go from the coast of the Mediterranean through modern-day Israel into Jordan, then back again. But it was a largely agricultural base, and it would seem that there were relatively few, very few, significant sized cities or towns in the inland of both Syria and and Jordan. itself. So although they may have been open to innovations, uh, the agricultural base would have meant that a, a lot of it didn't occur.
0: What would you say was your most interesting discovery at Devil Well, I th-
1: uh, well, it's archaeology, as you you know only too well. It's like uh, detective work. What I think the most interesting discovery overall was was the fact that, believe it or not, even though Alexander the Great, and uh, so uh, this is as regards the Seleucid Empire, Alexander the the Great then. His general Seleucus, and then the generals, then Seleucus' the son Antiochus, uh, founded a huge number of either new cities or refounded cities, because of the fact that virtually all these cities were then built on top of in subsequent periods, the Roman periods, uh, Islamic periods, etc., etc. We have virtually not been able to find anywhere uh, in the East what a foundation of Alexander or Seleucus actually looked like? How did they lay out the streets? Where did they put the temples? What did the temples look like? Were they really influenced mainly by the West, by Greek temples, by the East, etc.? At one stage, it seemed that it would be sorted out quite nicely to some degree when uh, in in the 1960s and then into the 70s until the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, uh, a city by its modern name, Ichanoum, was found on the banks of the Oxus River, and this again seemed to be a pure Seleucid foundation, or possibly by Alexander the Great. But then it, it again wasn't covered up by by subsequent civilizations. But sadly, of course, the um, after 15 years excavation, the Russian invasion stopped that, and now the place has been Iconos has been totally plundered, and uh, it, it's an absolute uh, loss. Now we thought, right at Jebel Hala, we'd have we'd do exactly the same thing set right on the Euphrates River, wonderful wall around it, 3.4 kilometres, nothing built on top of it, nothing built below it. So a pure foundation of Alexander or, or Seleucus. And, we, and in a way, this was, you know, the, the most found, uh, exciting foundation was digging, working out, what the blocks looked like, what the houses looked like, what the temples looked like, what the governor's palace looked like, where did the influence come from the east, from the west. We were going great guns, of course. And of course, then the Syrian civil war came into uh, into being and we haven't been able to get back there to, since 2010. But we, had pub- we have published six volumes already with the seventh coming on. So it wasn't just one single finding. But just the fact that we've done more than any site else in the east in, in what we have done so far in really getting a plan out of what a new colony looked like or a new city built on a, a very strategic crossing of the Euphrates, what it actually looked like, what they, they looked like. And if only we could get back there again.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, have you had any information about the site? Do you know if it's been looted or damaged in any way? Yes,
1: yes we, we have. Because it, it's, it was 100 metres above the the Euphrates on, on this, this rocky outcrop, and that's one of the reasons it was built there, because it, it commanded a very strategic crossing of the Euphrates, and because it was so high up, it would never be flooded when the Euphrates was in flood. Um, we understand that there was, on the governor's on the top of the governor's palace, which again is the highest point within the within the walls, there was a gun emplacement built. built. But it would seem, as far as we can tell, that there's nothing disastrous, nothing like what, what we see in, in Afghanistan, this place I mentioned, Ikanu, which is absolutely destroyed and plundered. And that hasn't happened from what we understand to at Jebel Hullad. Though it's interesting that our village, our main village for supplies, which used to be a very famous site in antiquity called Hierapolis, Holy City. Uh, Membidge, it's now called, the main village about 20 minutes away from where we, our dig house and everything was. Uh, that was the center of the headquarters for ISIS for quite a while. And then it was taken over by the Kurds. And uh, poor old Membidge, it was Membidge, it was just being tidied up each year because it was a very a famous site in antiquity the council decided that finally tied it up and try to restore it to its former glory. And of course, it's back to square one now, or even worse than that. One day we may get back to Jebel Hullard. it's uh, and hopefully, as far as we're aware, hopefully it's just a gun in place, but not much else that's been done. So sad. If nothing else, the pandemic plus various wars, not that I'm saying there'll be a war in Jordan, but the pandemic or things that can occur make you realise you really should publish sooner rather than later. And I must say that, that we really did the right thing in Jebel Hallad in that every few years we would have a study season. So we, we made sure we're up to date. So even though I understand that our storerooms have been, well, rifled and, and probably destroyed in Jebel Hallad, all the material that was there, the important material was sent on to, the battle material was sent to the, the museum in Aleppo, which Touchwood, I think is okay. But the other material we've been, we've recorded and worked on. So sadly, if it's destroyed, it won't be the end. We've already recorded that material.
0: I don't know if people realise how important it is to publish everything, isn't it? Because I think early, some of the early archaeologists, we're talking about sort of maybe early 20th century, they perhaps weren't so good at publishing their stuff. And it's, it's just really helpful for everybody else, isn't it? To get it out there so that they can see what's going on as well.
1: Oh, look, I think that's that's right. And uh, even if it doesn't mean you have to then publish and have all these endless theories. That can come later, but at least get it out there so other scholars can then look at it. And uh, as we all know, it's all very wonderful working in, in beautiful sites like Pella or Jebel Huller. It's stunning, the beautiful sites, but it's not such good fun when you have to go back and publish it all at home sitting in front of a computer. And that is why so much... Uh, archaeological excavations just aren't published or they're published in the barest form. Now ideally if you're a director of antiquities in one of these countries you'd probably say look none of you guys can come back until you've published that then you can get going. But of course a lot of the time we're employing especially when we're using big teams which in Pella and in Jebel we do, we're employing large numbers of workmen who often may be unemployed otherwise and so it's crucial that they get paid from us. So it's really a catch-22 situation.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today, John. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you, it's been a pleasure from my point of view too. Thanks, Fee.